0: Uh, It's been said that the strength and godliness of any uh, culture or society rests upon uh, the godliness and strength of the church, and that the strength and godliness of the church also rests upon something, and that is the family, the strength of the family. The scriptures reveal that God created all three of those institutions, the state, the church and the family. He gave particular design to the church in our structure in ecclesiology and particular design as well to the family as defined as a union of a husband and wife uh, together. They may or may not have children. But of those three, it's the family that really serves as the foundation, foundation for the church and for uh, the society the Christian author, Brian Chapel wrote this in his book, uh, Made for Each Other. He said, church historians say that Christianity swept the ancient Roman world not so much because of the arguments of theologians, but because of the infectious love evident in Christian families. A powerful statement. Not only did the uh, Christian faith sweep the ancient Roman world, but still today, God uses loving families as a primary means to redeem and transform people's lives. How many have come to faith through the seeds of faith in the gospel planted at a young age for mom, dad, within the home. And so we consider this theme of the family through the lens of the book of Proverbs. I would encourage you to turn to Proverbs 31. We'll read verses 10 through 31 Proverbs 31, beginning at verse 10. The closing words of this book. Listen now to God's word. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. The, the end here of Proverbs is in some ways also the climax, and is this poem in praise of this ideal woman. This is clearly a role model Uh, Those words, an excellent wife, in the first verse of of our passage, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find, can be translated more literally as a woman of strength. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, it reads more literally, a manly woman. That is, this woman is strong, is the emphasis there. And you see that in the description of her actions in life. She gets up early, she works hard, she opens her hands to the poor, uh, she's fearless about what is coming in the future, she enhances her husband's reputation, she speaks with wisdom, and at the foundation of it all is, is a woman who fears, reverences the Lord. So quite a godly role model. Yet while Proverbs ends with this strong emphasis upon a godly woman and wife, recall it began and for several chapters had an emphasis upon this wise father. Chapter 1, verse 8. Listen, hear, my son, your father's instruction. Chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments, you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So we have this godly Man and father at the beginning of the book. You've got a godly woman and wife at the end of the book. And throughout Proverbs, there is certainly a priority as well upon children. Even in chapter 31, verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. I wonder how many children have done that with their mother. Perhaps some of the mothers might be thinking, let's hear a little bit more about that. They rise up and call her blessed. Well, Proverbs is painting for us a picture of a godly family. Some of us know what that looks like and feels like because we were raised in that kind of home. If you're like me, you were were raised in a good and godly home where husband and wife, mom and dad, they loved each other, committed to each other, committed to the church, committed to nurturing their children in the Lord. If you did not experience that, perhaps you are cultivating that in your own life or your own family now, or you've witnessed it in another family's life and how they function. You've seen what it looks like. I know from 2008 to 2013, I was very privileged to be able to take some classes at Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh, and I would stay for one or two weeks uh, stints at a time traveling from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh at one of my professors' home homes. Uh, George Scipioni, the uh, counseling professor. He and his wife Eileen took me in. And uh, George Scipione, Dr. Scipioni was known as Skip. And uh, Skip had worked for a number of years earlier in his ministry with the uh, one of the fathers of the biblical counseling movement, Jay Adams. And uh, when you stay with someone in their home for a longer period of time, you see how they function. You get an insight into the rhythm of their lives. The Scipiones had a larger house with many rooms, but they were never empty. If their children weren't there, their adult, some of their adult children, uh, students would come like myself. People with particular needs would be staying in their home. It was a welcome and hospitable place. So this was a family who not... Only live for themselves, but for others. They had a rhythm to their lives. They were up early uh, every morning, husband and wife. And it was normal for me to come down the stairs, and while eating breakfast, you could hear them in the other room praying together, praying for each other, for their family, for what lay ahead in the day, for their responsibilities. Much of their days were spent in counseling, both of them, serving other people. Skip was planting a Presbyterian church in the OPC, serving as a professor, beginning and establishing and growing a biblical counseling institute there in Pittsburgh. And then the evenings were spent not only around the dinner table, but engaged in meaningful conversation, at the end of which would be often a reading from a portion of the Gospels, a time of prayer, and then lastly would be a card game or board game, a time of leisure. But their home was clearly a safe place, a nurturing place, a hospitable place. And it was a place where Christ was center. So I brought home with me not only a wonderful experience over those years staying with them, but also a quote. I remember seeing it on the front of their door the first time I came to their house. Now I have that same quote or saying engraved in a piece of wood in one of our rooms. And it says, home is where each lives for the other and all live for Christ. Home is where each lives for the other and all live for Christ. And that's the ideal picture found in Proverbs. At the heart of of a godly family is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. From the wife, from the husband, from children. Think about this first from the excellent wife here in Proverbs 31. At the heart of this text is a woman who's giving herself away to her family and community with this wholehearted selflessness. She's strong and she's capable, but unique to her strength is that she uses it to bless other people. First, her husband. Look at verse 11 and 12. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Verse 11 here is very significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, as one commentator put it, the fact that his heart trusts in her entails that his well-being stands or falls on her reliability. He says, this is remarkable, for outside of only one other passage in all the Bible which is in the book of Judges, the Bible condemns trust in anyone or anything apart from the Lord Yahweh. This present exception elevates the valiant wife who herself fears the Lord to the highest level of spiritual and physical competence. Now certainly our ultimate object of trust is the Lord God alone. But we see how God designed the marriage relationship, in such a way that when you are married, you're no longer independent. There is an interdependence that the married couple has to learn. They now lean upon each other. We depend upon one another. And it's a reflection of of the church's dependence upon Christ. And that's what we're living out in the marriage relationship. So, wives, your husbands need you need you. The second thing that's remarkable in verse 11 is the language that because because of this woman, quote, he will have no lack of gain. That word translated gain, at least in the ESV, is the word for loot or plunder, spoils of war. They're using a military metaphor here. You might be wondering why. Perhaps because this woman understands that life can, be, often is a struggle. It's it's a war in some ways. She knows the world's not perfect. Life is not a breeze. She's living in the real world, and she's up for the challenge. So no wonder this man trusts and leans upon his wife. In fact, the only person he trusts more is the Lord God himself. She is serving. She's sacrificing for his good. Verse 12, she does him good all the days of her life. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household. Now you might be thinking, while this noble woman is strong and she feels up to the challenge, I'm not feeling quite that way. Maybe you are feeling weak or you're feeling defeated. Remember this, in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham desired for his son Isaac a wife, he sent his servant to a distant land to go and find her. And I would say that when the Lord desired a wife for your husband, he truly reached across this infinite expanse and distance from heaven to earth to arrange history and circumstance providentially to bring you and your husband together. God sees you as really the ideal woman for your husband. For anyone who is married, Our marriages are not by chance or happenstance. They're divinely ordained. Perhaps the central principle that's driving this woman, I think, is one of the important keys for every wife, every husband, every child, and every believer as it pertains to your relationships horizontally on this earth. It's what we see in verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You see, what's animating and giving life to this woman's calling as a wife, as a mother, is not first her husband. It's not first her children. Family is not first for her. That's not her greatest aim. There's something more important than even them. And that more important person is actually what's enabling her to be a faithful, loving servant. It's the fear, the reverence of God. She knows her Lord. She seeks to serve the Lord above all else. It's a wonderful truth that what our wife, what our husband, what others need most from us is not first a commitment to them, but a commitment to the Lord God himself. That's what they need most from us. And then as we love the Lord and serve the Lord, He sanctifies us. He gives us a sufficient grace and love and care to be faithful and loving toward another. And so Christ is to be our first love and aim, what is fueling us in our lives. You have this noble, ideal woman. You also have an emphasis through not only Proverbs, but through all Scripture on the husband, the father, A man's calling to sacrificial love. Verse 28 and 29, the husband also rises up and calls her blessed. He praises her and he says, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Uh, This husband is not only loving his wife, but he's telling her of her excellence Think about that, husbands. Where does your wife excel? Where is she excellent? We ought to tell them. We ought to communicate that. Many of us are husbands. Some of us are husbands to be. Uh, But think about that word, husband. We have a related English word, husbandry. Husbandry, which means cultivation. And that's very much at the heart of what uh, family and the marriage relationship is to be to cultivate and nurture another so that their life is opening up and flourishing in the Lord. This is done by speaking words of encouragement. It's done by praying for and praying with them. It's done by showing affection and love, by encouraging their life in Christ. It's done by seeking to understand your spouse. My mentor used to say, we ought to seek to get a Ph.D. in our spouse. Not easy to do. Most importantly, this cultivation is done by sacrificial love. That's what we heard read earlier in Ephesians 5, that very important chapter in regards to submission and love of one another and the marriage relationship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Notice the kind of love that this is. It's not a love that gives in order to receive something back. It's not a love that is conditioned on how well my wife or any other treats me. This is a love defined by what? The cross of Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's words in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While rebellious and obstinate, Christ died for us. In any relationship, this is one of the most freeing truths, that how we relate to another is not defined by how they relate to us. Fundamentally, it is how Christ has related to us. That's what is to have an ownership of the way we relate to another. Not the shifting actions and words of those toward me, but the rock of Christ's love, defined by the cross. I'm sure many of us know this already, but what gives a husband biblical success in his marriage or a wife biblical success in her marriage is not compatibility. I think that's the best kind of foundation, very sandy one, that the world has to offer. Sure, there may be certain types of people that you would flourish with more easily than others. But ultimately, what causes flourishing and length of years is not compatibility. It is a commitment demonstrated by sacrificial love. That's why so many marriages are destroyed and end, because it requires just that sacrifice, sacrificial love. That's a person who has love to pour out because they are open to the love of Christ being poured into them. One of the resources that I use in premarital counseling is called Prepare and Enrich. It's somewhere about a 100 questions or so uh, that each engaged person answers. It deals with family backgrounds, spiritual and religious beliefs, uh, how you deal with conflict, and then it shoots me out all of this input, uh, all of this uh, information that I can use in the counseling. I had learned about this resource from one of my professors. They suggested it. And what I tell every couple is what the professor told me, that the resource is designed based on compatibility. In other words, the results that come back about areas that you would see as strength, potential strengths, areas of concern they're all based on how well-suited you are for the other person. So when the professor learned of this resource, he and his wife, who had been married 25 to 30 years at that point, wanted to take it so that they knew how it worked as they used it with their uh, students, with his students. And he said, when they took it, they scored about as low as you possibly could on the compatibility scale. There's, there's some good news there. I knew this, this professor pretty well. Worked with, one of, uh, worked with his son, who, an adult child with severe special needs. Here, this married couple, joyful in Jesus Christ, serving the Lord. Wonderful family. And his point was that compatibility is not what makes a marriage strong or flourishing. It is that sacrificial love. Evidence most clearly in Jesus Christ and his cross. Finally, we see that sacrificial love taking shape in the form of parents uh, disciplining or discipling uh, their children. The text says of this godly woman and mother in verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue one of the well-known proverbs is back in chapter 22 verse 6 uh, train up a child in the way he should go even when he's old he will not depart from it and the emphasis in that verse among other things is that is upon setting the child at an earlier age upon a particular course and that will have even in their latter years a Lasting, powerful effect. Now, you're still a parent when your children become adults. I'm not at that stage. But the time you have in those earlier years are limited, temporary. And there's a whole lot more at stake for your children than getting them into the best schools or getting the best jobs. Our children have an eternal destiny. The training up should center on Christ and his kingdom. Listen to these words. This is good news for parents. The ultimate aim of our parenting is not for our children to be physically safe or healthy. It's not improved performance in school or in sports or on the saxophone. It's not even exemplary behavior or the approval of church members. The ultimate aim of our parenting is to call our children to trust and obey Christ. We do this by our example. We do this through our discipline. We do this in family worship and at bedside prayer times. We do this by bringing our children under the word in corporate worship. We do this in faith. Those are words from Megan Hill in one of her devotionals. And in all of this, all of us who know Christ are children of a glorious and loving Heavenly Father. He is nurturing us. He is disciplining and discipling us. Remember those words in Hebrews. My son, my children, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank You for uh, Your discipling and shepherding hand in all of our lives. Lord, for the various uh, positions and places uh, relationally that we are in, uh, each of us uh, different uh, husbands, brothers and sisters, children, wives, and in all of this, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would look to the cross of Jesus Christ, not only for our redemption, but also for that pattern by which we shape our living. Lord, fill our hearts with the love of Christ that it would flow out into the relationships that you have given to us, that we would find joy and delight in that very thing, to be living in response to your redeeming grace in ours. We give you thanks for uh, your faithfulness to us, for your sufficient grace in Christ. And we pray that you would um, animate and fuel our lives, Lord, uh, with your goodness and presence and uh, by your abiding word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.